Good afternoon. Good evening. It's probably afternoon, but it uh, feels like evening, doesn't it? <clears throat> Last week, we asked the question, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? We asked, why, why does it even matter that we're made in the image of God? So we went back to Genesis 1, we went back to the creation account, to our origins, to discover what, what reason has God created humanity And we found out that he created us as image bearers. And as image bearers, we're responsible for ruling on God's behalf. And and because we're responsible for ruling on God's behalf, we're responsible to reflect his character in creation. That's our purpose. Of course, humanity failed to, to complete that mission, didn't they? Instead of reflecting God's rule, we rebelled. We tried to replace God's rule, not reflect it. Then we saw how God restored his image by actually taking on flesh himself, by becoming a man and revealing the true image of God to all of us. That's exactly where Colossians 1, 15 through 20, the text we're going to be at tonight, begins. But it goes even further. It answers an even more important question. How is, rec- how is Christ not only revealing his image, but how is he restoring his image right now, on this earth. And we'll find the answer to that in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. If you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to go there. So Colossians, it's in the New Testament. And uh, I'm not sure what page number it is on the, the red Bible uh, that you have. That's what the, the text that I'll be using this, this evening. But it's in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. <clears throat> Read with me. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The text begins where we left off last week. The Son... Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In the Old Testament, God was always unseeable. He was invisible. Even the Apostle John says, no one has ever seen God. The miracle of the incarnation is that the invisible has been made, has, has been made visible in Christ. As we talked about last week, God made millions in creation, self-images, humanity. But all have become marred by sin. So we're marred images. None were perfect reflectors of God's rule and his character. But in Jesus, we get a person who is God in the flesh. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. So, so Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, reveals unfiltered God to us. We're not getting a diminished God in Jesus. We're not getting a replica of God in Jesus. No, Jesus is the true image of God because he is God himself. 
And as the true image of God, he is the firstborn over all creation, as we read in verse 15. You might be thinking to yourself, how can God be the firstborn of, of all creation? Aren't we celebrating the birth of Jesus at Christmas time? I'm fairly certain that that happened about 2,000 years ago, somewhere in the Middle East. Certainly there are a lot of people born before him, so why are they calling him the firstborn? Well, the language of firstborn in the Bible and in these ancient texts doesn't often refer to time, actually, but rather position and priority. Let me show you. Psalm 89, 27. Speaking of the future king of Israel, God says, And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of kings on the earth. You see, the second half of the verse explains the first half. I will make him the firstborn. How? Because he is the highest of kings on the earth. To be the firstborn doesn't indicate that Jesus was born in time and space. It means that he has been made supreme, the highest of kings on the earth. And that's really the main point of this passage. Jesus Christ is supreme. He's greater than everything. It's a pretty simple point. He's the ruler. He's the great and final king. And the rest of this passage basically gives two reasons for Christ's greatness, his supremacy over all things. First, in verses 15 through 17, Christ is supreme over all things because he is the author of creation. Second, in verse 18, Christ is supreme over all things because he's the author of a new creation. So that's where we'll start today. First, Christ is supreme over all things because he is the author and he is the sustainer over creation. Verse 15 says, he is the firstborn of creation. And as I said, it doesn't mean that he was born in any way in time and space. We know this from other passages like John 1 that says that Jesus existed in the beginning with God. But the next line clears up any doubt. He, he can't be created because by him all things are created. Do you see that in verse 15 and 16? For by him all things were created. Jesus is the author of all created things. Although the Son is not explicitly mentioned in Genesis 1, as we read last week, we know that the Son existed with God from eternity past. And he was actually the agent. He executed God's creation. In verse 16, Paul clarifies what all things refers to. Reading the text. All things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. So from the heights of heaven, the invisible, to the depths of the earth, the very visible, Christ is creator of all and and as creator is ruler of all. Even the most powerful positions, the thrones and dominions of man, are all created by God, and thus God rules over them. But he goes even further in the last half of 16. All things were created through him and for him. This is one of the reasons we know that Jesus must be God. If creation exists for God, to glorify If creation exists to glorify and magnify Jesus Christ, he can be nothing other than God. In some mysterious way, you and I and all creation exist. All the trees and all the mountains and all the rivers exist. Civilizations exist. Angels exist. 
in order to make Jesus look beautiful. All of creation is a, shri- is a shining trophy case that's designed to, to point the fame and glory and light on Christ and his might, his order and symmetry, his beauty and splendor. That's one reason why, in a very practical application, your life matters. I know some of you struggle to identify meaning in this life. I think we all struggle that with that to some extent. You are part of God's creation, right? And as such, you exist to make Jesus look glorious. You're created for him. So listen, if, if a starfish that sits in the bottom of the ocean, doing more, of course, than collecting dust, because there's no dust down there, is created to glorify God, how much more can you? All the complexity that God made you, in all the social interactions that you have, glorify God. Make him look, make Jesus look beautiful. But to be made for Jesus means that ultimately you also answer to Jesus, doesn't it? There are many people in your life you probably answer to. If you have a boss, you answer to your boss. If you have a dad or a mom, you probably answer to them, at least to a certain age, right? If you have a spouse, to some extent, you even answer to them. All those relationships matter. And partly, how you act in those relationships is a reflection of how you love God. But at the end of the day, ultimately, your responsibility is not to any of them, is it? You won't have to make an accounting of your life before any of those people, but you will meet Jesus face to face. And he will rightfully say to you, you were created for me. Give an account of how you spent your life. On the one hand, this means your life has a lot of significance, doesn't it? But it also means what you do with your life has eternal implications. Whom will you worship? Whom will you adore? Who will you trust? Going on in verse 17. Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Again, Paul is reinforcing that Jesus is the priority over all creation. He is the supreme being. He is before all things. Although the sun shows up in a manger, right, in time and space, in the Middle East, around 2,000 years ago, his existence as the Son of God is from eternity past. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is before all things. But he isn't only the agent of creation. He's not only the goal of creation— He's also the sustainer of creation. He holds all things together. Apart from his sustaining of power, uh, the entire creation would dissolve. Every subconscious breath that you take is sustained and is given to you by the power of Jesus. I want to draw attention to the sustaining power of Jesus briefly. We just saw that Jesus isn't the author only of physical creation, right? But also of the invisible creation, of the heavenly creation, the spiritual. Isn't it true, then, 
that Jesus isn't only the sustainer of physical life, but also your spiritual life. Christian, this means two things for you. First, if you're a Christian, your faith in Jesus and your love for God could not remain true. It could not endure one day apart from the sustaining power of Jesus. You don't even have the ability to trust and love Jesus on your own apart from his sustaining power in your life. Secondly, it also means you don't have to be consciously anxious about whether you'll have enough faith or love to be ultimately accepted by Jesus, do you? Because his power will help your faith endure, and his power will help your love for him remain true throughout your life. He will complete the good work that he has begun in you. So, in the first few verses, Paul has argued, That Jesus is supreme because he's the author, he's the goal, and he's the sustainer of creation. But in verse 18, he moves moves to a second and even more profound reason for Jesus' supremacy, for his greatness. And that second reason is Christ is supreme over all things because he is the author of a new creation. Let's read verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead. What does it mean that Jesus is the head of the body, namely the church? The church is often viewed as the body of Christ, right? 1 Corinthians 12 describes the church this way. And by describing the church as a body, Paul is saying that each part of the body, each member of the body, and each member of the church is integral to the health of the entire organism, right? The hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you. Or the foot can't say to the hand, I don't need you. You all need one another. Here, rather than emphasizing the relationship between the body parts to each other, he he emphasizes the relationship between the body to the head. So what does it mean then that Jesus is the head of the church? I think it means two things. First, quite simply, a body has no life apart from its head, does it? As head of the body, Jesus is the source of its life. He is the source of the life of the church. He gives life to the church and its existence. Second, as head, Jesus has authority or rule over the church. Ephesians 1.22, Paul says, And God placed him, Jesus, as head over all things, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. So Jesus is supreme because he is Lord over creation, and because he's Lord over the church. And then we get to the next phrase. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. To be honest, when I read this the first time, I assume that Paul was just returning to his earlier point. Jesus is the firstborn of creation. He was before all things. The Son of God existed in the beginning with God when he created the world. But I think that assumption was wrong. I don't think he is referring to the beginning of time here in creation. Paul's already made that point emphatically, that Jesus was there in the beginning and he created everything. He is the author of creation. Now he wants to show us that Jesus is the Lord and author of a new creation. I think Paul is giving us a clue into what the church is, what its identity is in the, in the grand story. 
But first, we need to take a step back. Last week, we talked about God's act of creation. He made everything good, and he placed his image bearer in creation to reflect God's kingdom and rule on earth. But humanity didn't reflect God's kingdom, did it? They rebelled against God, and the earth began to decay. The lush ground of Eden became hard. Thorns grew. Thistles, weeds infested the ground. But the Old Testament prophets announced that when God's true and final king was born, when he was born, he would eradicate evil and establish God's rule on the earth. And when he did that, God would remake a new creation with a perfect order, just like even Eden, and even better. Well, Jesus enters the stage of human history. He is the true Messiah of Israel, and he is the true king. But oddly enough, he doesn't come and destroy the wicked. He doesn't come into the Roman Empire, who's oppressing Israel, and just kick Roman butt. Oddly enough, when he arrives, it doesn't appear that he has established a new world order, and it doesn't look like his rule has extended over all creation. So where is this new kingdom? Where is this new creation? That all the Old Testament prophets would have expected. We know it's going to come in its fullness in the future. When Jesus returns a second time, we call that his second advent. But this text suggests, along with others, that the new creation has actually broken into the world at the present time. So what does the phrase, he is the beginning, mean if it doesn't refer to the original creation? The clue comes in the very next phrase. He is the firstborn from among the dead. Verse 18. It's a common reference to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. But what does it have to do with a new creation? In 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus' resurrection from the dead is called the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus' re- resurrection from the dead marked the beginning. First fruits of harvest meant the beginning of the harvest. It meant this fruit was kind of a promise of more to come, right? Jesus' resurrection from the dead marked the beginning of of a new creation. His resurrection is the guarantee, the promise that all of the dead in Christ, namely the church, will rise one day as well. But Paul makes that go one step further in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. There he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Right now, if anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. Jesus' resurrection marks the beginning of the new creation. And all who are in Christ have joined him in that new creation. The new creation that has begun in the hearts of those who are part of, right here, local churches. So what does it mean when he says Jesus is the beginning? It means that he is the beginning, the author, not only of the old creation, but of the new creation. A new creation that has broken into the present time for those who have put their faith in Christ. So what does this mean here for us? As we wait for Christ's return, where he will finally remove evil from creation and set up his kingdom on earth, his new 
his final new creation, we know that that new creation has already broken in right now in the fallen creation. And how has it done that? It's broken in in local churches, in those who are in Christ. You are his new creation. Members of Rotherham Evangelical Church, you are a small representation of God's kingdom and his new creation in his fallen creation. There's no denying that we live in a broken, very broken, decaying creation, don't we? Just walk down Wellgate. I do it almost every day. And I see brokenness. I see sad faces. I see a lot of paint scraped off the walls. and It just doesn't look all that much like utopia, does it? I hope not, at least. I see immense brokenness, but REC, the beauty of God's story is that he has begun the new creation in the midst of the old, fallen, broken one. It's not the building that's God's creation. It's not the little building on Wellgate that's God's creation. It's the people. You who are Christ, are, you who are in Christ, are the first fruits of God's new creation. And you've been des- designed to spread that new creation in the old one. Until the day when he makes your spiritual reality the physical reality. The last part of verse 18 summarizes all that comes before it. So that in everything he might have the preeminence. Christ has supremacy, not over only over the original creation, the heavens and the earth, but also he has supremacy over the new creation. And so we're left with one big question. How did he do this? How did he accomplish it? How did he accomplish this new creation and the supremacy that he deserves? In the Old Testament, there were two primary things that must happen for creation to be restored. Okay? First, God had to bring his presence, his presence back to his people. Second, God had to be reconciled with his people who rebelled against him. When those two things were restored, the new creation could burst into existence. So first we see that Jesus is the one who brings God's presence back to earth. Do you remember what happened to Adam and Eve after they sinned against God in the garden? What happened? You can talk. Anybody. They were driven out of the garden, weren't they? God drove them out. Because Eden was the place where God's unique presence was. But when they rebelled, he drove them out of the garden. You see, to be cut off from the garden, to be cut off from God's presence, was the punishment. Verse 19 says, For God was pleased to have his fullness, his full presence, dwell in Jesus. When Jesus showed up in a rural town in the Middle East 2,000 years ago, it was the very presence of God that came to earth. Jesus isn't just a good prophet. He isn't merely a really righteous man who, because of his righteousness, was just really close to God. That's what a lot of people think. He wasn't a humanitarian hippie who just epitomizes love for everyone, regardless of their moral framework. A lot of people would love that, Jesus. He is God in the flesh. And he lifts his throne in heaven to live amongst the lowliest of people. 
to identify with the broken, with the poor, with the disenfranchised, with the marginalized, with the minority, with the oppressed. But God's presence on earth brings a problem for us. There's a problem there. See, God's presence is good. Without it, sin and destruction would reign. But his presence is also incredibly dangerous. This reminds me of a, quite frankly, an overused illustration, but a story that is perfect for this point. It reminds me of a moment in the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, when the children meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are described, or at least Mrs. Beaver is describing Aslan to them for the first time. Mr. and Mrs. Beaver tell the children that Aslan is the king of the wood. He's the king of all the beasts. He's a lion. Aslan is the lion. The great lion. And Lucy, in her innocence, responds, I shall be quite afraid to meet a lion. Is he quite safe? Safe, says Mr. Beaver. Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. God is not safe. His presence is incredibly dangerous. He is so holy that sin and evil and uncleanness cannot be in his presence. This is why in the Old Testament it wasn't just anyone who could go into God's temple particularly the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was the place where God was uniquely present with Israel, okay? And because no one was holy, no one could go in there. Except for one time a year, the high priest was allowed to come in to represent his people, to represent the people of Israel. He would wash himself clean, ceremonially. He would put on new clean clothes, white, linen, pure clothes, garments. He then would bring a sacrifice for the people. But he wouldn't come in with one sacrifice. He'd bring another sacrifice for himself because he knew the moment he steps into God's presence, his sin would eradicate him from the world. God isn't safe. He couldn't go in without a sacrifice. It was too holy of a place to have any trace of sin. And the blood of the sacrifice that he brought in would satisfy God's wrath against sin. So that when he entered the holy place, God didn't strike him down. But remember, he's not only dangerous, he's good. And we see God's goodness in the next phrase in Colossians. Jesus reconciles sinners by making peace with his blood. Verse 20. Through Jesus, and I'm going to supply these words, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus enters the world to restore God's presence to the world. And if God's presence is going to be restored to the world and we're going to make it out alive, he's got to 
have a sacrifice for him. A sacrifice must be made. And as image bearers, we were created to be sons and daughters. We're created to be in relationship, as we, as we talked about last week. To be made in the image of God is to be made as a son or a daughter of God. We're created for relationship, for intimacy with God. He's to be our father. But your sin has estranged you from that relationship. So Jesus comes to reconcile that relationship. To make you a son. To make you a daughter. He comes to heal. Not first and foremost your sicknesses, although he does that. Or your broken relationship at home, although he does that. Or your broken relationship at work, and he does that. But he comes first to heal your broken relationship with God. Reconciliation. He makes peace between you and God. He makes a safe space for you and God to be together. So how does Jesus do this? How does he reconcile us? In the most beautiful twist in history, God, in the person of Jesus, becomes the sacrifice required to satisfy God's wrath against sin. This isn't some act of self-masochism. It's the humble willingness of Jesus to do what no other human in history could ever do, namely provide a sinless, pure, guiltless sacrifice for you. And God the Father is pleased with this sacrifice. In this willing sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, we find the sparks of the new creation. That's how he does it. So, in conclusion, in the Advent, this Advent season, supposed to be an Advent sermon, in Christ's condescension, God is creating a new people. He does it by bringing his presence, but not only bringing his presence, because that would be awfully dangerous without providing reconciliation and a sacrifice. So in his condescension, when Christ comes in a manger, he's creating a new people, a new humanity, a new creation right before his eyes. That's what Christmas is all about, making new image bearers made into the very likeness of Christ, who is the true image of God. Christ accomplishes this by becoming low, by becoming a man. And he accomplishes it even further by stooping even lower, by giving his life on a cross, paying the punishment that we should have paid with our own lives. Coal and tin mining is mainly a past experience, I'm led to believe, in this country. But I'm sure many of you are keenly aware of the dangers that come in mining. Many of you have grandparents or parents, brothers, sisters, spouses, who were probably miners. Even some of you I know were yourselves miners at some point. One of the greatest dangers in mining is the risk of a collapse, being trapped. The miners who survived these kinds of disasters live on to tell incredibly frightening stories. When a collapse happens, total darkness envelops you. The silence, they say, is almost deafening. The air is suffocating. 
You have nowhere to run. You can't run from one wall to the other. You're cut off from light. You're cut off from the presence of those you love. And you're trapped in agonizing fear. And your only hope is that someone is going to find their way down to you and release you from that. Can you imagine the hope that rushes in the miner's heart when he hears someone say, Hello? Are you okay down there? Can I help? I'm, I'm here to help. Just, just wait a couple more hours and I'll be, I'll be with you. I'll rescue you. Instantly. There's hope. The slow, agonizing wait instantly becomes optimistic anticipation, right, of rescue. I'll see my wife. I'll see my children. I'll see light again. Friend, unbeliever here, if you haven't turned from your sin, if you haven't put your faith in Christ, you are the trapped miner. You are cut off from God's presence. You are cut off from true life. You're imprisoned by your own sin. You're trapped. But Jesus has condescended. He became a man. He took on flesh. He, he took on your guilt on the cross and provided reconciliation between you and your Creator. With all the complexity that life brings, there's really one simple question that it all comes down to. One simple question that really matters, one decision that really matters, and it's this. When the rescuer comes down, will you clutch to him? Will you put your faith in him and have life? Or will you reject him? More likely, will you ignore him? Right? And in so doing, choose that. Choose life you're not a believer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your Son, for leaving the splendor and the riches of your throne in heaven, Jesus, and taking a throne in a stack of hay. Lord, you didn't have to condescend to us. You didn't have to become a man. You could have cast us off in indifference. Lord, we are often indifferent to you, and we have a million and one reasons why we just don't need to believe or trust or accept. We're always fielding accusations towards you. Lord, let us look on the crucified Savior. the man who had every reason to exploit or to use his power and wield his power and authority over the earth. But he became a man and he suffered death. Lord, let us look at that example and let all the accusations, all the defense mechanisms that we have to you fall away. You're a beautiful 
crucified, but conquering risen Savior. And Lord, you don't leave us just to be poor beggars, but you make us into new creations. And Lord, I pray for this church, the new creation that has invaded Rotherham, England, to live as a kingdom of priests, as reflectors of God's grace and mercy and kindness and justice and beauty in the eight to five, five to ten hours of their life. All for one purpose. To magnify you, to make you look as beautiful as you are, even though we will never do that. We ask these things, and we continue worshiping you in your name. Amen.